Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We are disciples of Jesus that build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. Of course, I'm Pastor Aaron. I'm glad that you are here with us today on this Independence Day, and a happy Independence Day to all of you. It's wonderful to uh, celebrate the freedoms that we have. It's amazing that we can worship here to get today together without fear, without any... That's amazing. I mean, how many believers throughout the world right now don't have that and throughout history, and so we're grateful for that. And uh, yeah, grateful to continue to be part of this, uh, this country. So uh, today, we're going to talk about following Jesus because he didn't just build his nation. He built a kingdom, and we get to talk about that today. As we go through our series, of course, we're going through all four Gospels, the life of Christ, because if you're a follower of Jesus... We want to know what he did, and then what did he say, and what did he teach. And so far, we've, we've gone through, we saw him, how he was born, and the first 30 years of his ministry, the first full year of his ministry, including his beginning time there in Galilee, and today we finish up his first Galilean tour, and that takes us through the end of his second year of ministry. We'll be today. So as uh, I go through that, our memory verse is uh, Matthew 16, 24. I hope by now it's starting to connect a little bit, but these are the expectations of Jesus of his disciples, so it's important that we gain these. So here you go. Just say it along with me. Three, two, one. Then Jesus said to his disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Awesome. Again, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, Matthew 16, 24. Awesome. Last time. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, Matthew 16, 24. Oh, you sound so good. You've been practicing. I know. And for those of you who might need a lecture practice, there is that uh, the memory verse card on that green connection card, which is in your bulletin. And if you pull that out, if you already have it out there, it's great. You might as well fill that connection card out for us. And at the end of the message, you can drop that in the offering basket at the end of the back of the room there. Um, and we'll come back to that later in the message, of course, with some next steps of how we uh, can take this uh, and uh, this message and put it into a practice in our lives. So let's talk about the Galilean ministry uh, thus far. Which is, uh, Jesus starts there. This is, of course, his hometown area. This is his region that he was at, and he began his ministry up there in, in Galilee, and then uh, he continues that. Now, we're going to be talking today really about the second year of ministry. It's, we have it broken up, and so we have another Passover. It says in John chapter 5, it says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, it's not specified as Passover, but it's likely that it's Passover because Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he has a history of doing that. You remember that even when he was 12, right? He was there when his parents went down there, of course, when he was very young, uh, and then, of course, he's 12, and we just find out he's got this history of it. When he's first year of ministry, he takes his disciples there like he always does, and he's down there in Jerusalem. Um, but... Um, Possibly, this could be a different festival. Uh, it might be the Festival of Tabernacles, which would be six months later. It doesn't really matter the timing because we know that this definitely puts us then into the second year of ministry. And so we see that Jesus takes that, that long walk, and you're going to see that map a lot. He goes from Galilee, which is that northern area, and Capernaum is the hometown where he's at, and he goes all the way back down to Jerusalem. And then in today's thing, he also goes back up that way uh, to Capernaum again. So he travels this twice in today's thing. So... Um, so we have this, uh, 
this first thing, he goes down to Jerusalem and he's at this festival and there's people everywhere. And the first thing that we find that he does there is he heals a landman who's at this pool. And he does that, he does his healing um, on the Sabbath. And this is where it starts causing trouble. Right? So uh, the pool that, that he heals him is called Bethsaida. It means house of mercy. And uh, in history, it was one of those things, and we read in John, that it has a five-sided pool. It's got five colonnades, five sides to it. And so historically, this was an issue because there wasn't any pentagon-shaped pools in Jerusalem. And they're like, well, this couldn't be true. And all the skeptics were out there, well, Jesus couldn't have a, the, the gospels can't be trusted or whatever. Well, it turns out that actually there is a five-sided pool in Jerusalem. And uh, it's like this, except for it wasn't a pentagon. It actually has, it's like a rectangle. And then uh, it's like two pools and it has a uh, colony in the middle. So one, two, three, four, and then down the middle, five, which I think is kind of funny. It's kind of cool. So we found this, it's, uh, and it was called, uh, it's often used by shepherds. It's outside of kind of the, the general walls of it. It's close to the temple. It's close to uh, the, one of the fortresses that's there. And, and it was really the upper pool. There's a, a spring that's underneath it, and the spring is actually still has water there today. And uh, shepherds would go, and they would, you know, have their sheep drink from it and all that kind of stuff. And eventually, the ha- um, a long time back, they about 700 years before Jesus came, that upper pool was finally kind of built in to be a reservoir. It's going to trap that, that uh, spring water and also was going to trap some of the uh, rain water and they're going to be able to use that and, and send that into the city. Then in the Hasmoneans during the time of the, like the Maccabees after uh, the Greeks were kind of over Israel and all that kind of stuff uh, about 200 years before Jesus, the Hasmoneans decided they were going to improve upon this and they built that lower uh, section that's there, and then they create a little dam between the two. And that lower one may have been a massive mikvah, possibly because there's steps into it, but um, no one really knows. It was just extra storage for water and all of this. And they had these colonnades around the outside. But there's something interesting about this water. Occasionally it would bubble up, apparently, or stir up, or things like this. And, and so we have uh, uh, some pagan cults started to believe that this was maybe like healing water. And so it was a place that folks would go to in order to get healed. And so they ha- came up, this, there was this, this thing, like there was an angel or something that would stir up the water and the first person that got in there would be healed or something like this. And, and that was kind of happening there. So it was kind of a pagan place. I understand why and, and location of it. Here's a, isn't that cool? That's a, a, an actual model that's in Israel that they made of this. So on the outside, you see that the, the pool is there and it's right outside of the wall, but it's close to the fortress An- Antonia, which means that the Roman soldiers would be there. And the Roman soldiers went and they set up, even inside of that temple area, they sent up a, uh, there's a cave that's kind of on the side there, a, uh, a worship center for this god of Asipolis, who was uh, basically the doctor god. And he would go and heal. He was the son of Apollo and he would heal people. And so that's what they thought was here. And then they also set up another one, Fortuitous, which was the god of fortune, which I think is awesome. And so they set up those things. And uh, so it was a pagan place. And it was a place that people would go in order to find healing. It was a place for the most desperate. It was also close to the temple, which just makes sense why you'd have... uh, they do a lot of sacrifice there at the temple because people are naughty. And so there'd be a lot of shepherds and there's a sheep gate there by that north wall. And so, uh, so scripture talks about this was the location of it. And sure enough, there it was and they found it. And so, uh, so you have this pagan 
kind of centered place right outside of the temple. Uh, another thing, uh, shepherds weren't really viewed very highly because they're around sheep and sheep poo and it's kind of dirty and nasty and stuff like that. So the religious folks wouldn't hang around with shepherds and they certainly wouldn't hang around like a pagan site. But I know if you're desperate enough, you'll go and do about anything. A lot of people do. And, uh, and this is where the story takes place. And it's interesting that Jesus would even stop here because most religious people would never go to this place. Now, modern day, when I got to go there, I always thought of the pool like a nice little gentle like waiting pool, like a kiddie pool. Right? When you hear the story that, you know, when somebody's sick, they would rush into the water and maybe the first one would get healed. That's what was their crazy beliefs and all that. When we went there, that's deep. And it's like straight down walls. And it made me think about it. the person in the, if, if you went, tried to jump in and half of your body doesn't work, you might drown. Like, and it's, that's, that's the pool. It's pretty crazy. Well, there was colonnades around this. And, and kind of like midway through, you see like that halfway arch, whatever. That's kind of the, where there was a, a break between the pools. And uh, there was the colonnades around it. And, and there was this guy that was there waiting to try to get healed. And he was trying, he was, he was trying everything. And maybe, maybe here he would find some healing. He was paralyzed. And it was 38 years he had been waiting. And uh, he, he, talk about desperation. Obviously the doctors couldn't do anything. Obviously he had no other hope. He, now he's in this place. He could see the temple, but he's separated from his, the, the faith of his forefathers, right? He's, he's out in this pagan place trying to find healing for 38 years. And every time the waters would get stirred up or whatever would happen to it, other people would rush in in front of him and jump in or whatever and, and all of this. And he was just without hope, dejected. And in John chapter 5, we read that this says, when Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been there uh, in this condition for a long time. And he asked him, do you want to get well? What a profound question. You know, sometimes we get so stuck in our muck that we like it. We just make our home there. It becomes our pigsty. And before Jesus imposed a healing on this man, he asks him a very important question. Do you want to get better? And everything would change for this man. I mean, for his whole life. This was his identity. Almost 40 years, almost 40 decades. That's longer than a lot of people lived back then. And Jesus asks him first, do you really want this? And the man explains that, he, of course he wants this. And so Jesus says, all right, get up. Pick up your mat and go. And he does. That just be phenomenal. Well, then we find the very next verse, he picks up his mat and he goes. But it says, once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And the day this took place was a Sabbath. And that's the issue, right? Now, the Sabbath is something that God set up from the very beginning of creation. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's a creation thing. God made the world six days, seventh day. He took off, set a pattern for us. He says, I, there's a rhythm in life. You're supposed to work and also rest, right? The stretch and release. And it's something that's important that we all have. There's a day we're supposed to keep holy, which means different unlike any other day. We're supposed to keep a Sabbath. We're not supposed to work. Well, understand that the, that the people of Israel, before they had the second temple, they had a first temple. And the first temple was beautiful and wonderful, and they had all that stuff, but the people forgot to honor God. And one of the things they forgot to do was to give the land a Sabbath. They, they didn't keep one themselves, but they didn't give one to the land. And so God put them into, to, uh, he allowed the Babylonians to take them for seven years, to give the land a rest and kind of teach them, hey, this is kind of important, right? Uh, my laws matter. 
What happened out of that is that the people came back after they came uh, from that bondage. They came back to the land. They rebuilt the temple. But they also said, never again, never again will we allow this to take place. And so they took God's law and they said, all right, we want to make sure that we don't just keep a Sabbath holy, how we're going to keep it holy. And so they wrote all of these laws around the law saying we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, what's work? Well, one of the things they decided work was was transporting something from point A to point B. You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. And that's not in Scripture, but it's one of the ways that they tried to honor Scripture. And so here's this man who is now healed in a pagan place. He gets up and, and he takes his mat, which is not against the Sabbath. In fact, God told him to do it. But it was against the tradition. The law that was to protect the law to keep the nation safe so they wouldn't offend God again. And so the Jewish officials see this man walking through the seats, the streets in this, this festival, and he has his mat, and they're, get, they're indignant. They're like, what are you doing? You're breaking our laws. And he says, I can walk. <laughs> they're like, well, who told you to do this? And there's a lot of people around, and he's like, I don't know, but I can walk. Well, John 5, 14, it says, Later Jesus found him, and this is interesting, he finds him at the temple, something this man could have seen for years but never been able to go to on his own. How fantastic would that have been? And he's restored to go back to worship God, but then Jesus gives him a, a really important, and kind of almost intimidating thing. He says, see, you are well again. That Jesus was showing him, you didn't get your healing from those pagans. You didn't get your healing from some false kind of sick game that, that the devil tries to play. I gave you healing. So now he's got authority. And he says, all right, but stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Now that's, that's not a threat, that's a warning. That something is worse than having a body broken, and that's a broken spirit. And it's important for us to see that in this particular thing, that Jesus, when he comes, a lot of times we as Christians, because we live in this era of grace, right, that God has given us, and a lot of times we see how he spars with the Pharisees and their weird interpretations of the law and all this and how he rejects them, that sometimes and some Christians and, and maybe some of us, and I, me included at times, have taken God's righteousness too lightly and thought that Jesus doesn't care about righteousness because he has grace, Right? God will forgive me. Jesus cares deeply about righteousness. He cares about us. He heals us in our lives, but he comes to make us holy. That's important. In fact, miracles ought to turn us to God, shouldn't they? When God works in our life, when he forgives us, when he, he changes us, when you see his intervention in our lives, it's not to, for us to abuse his grace or to take it for granted. Shouldn't it turn our hearts to the God who did save us and say, God, I want to be more like you? God, I want to please you? This is the purpose of those. Well, this man has Jesus warn him on this, and I don't know if he liked it or not, but what the next thing he does is he rats out Jesus. Right? So he's there in the temple, and Jesus is like, stop sinning. And he's like, oh, I'm going to tattle on you. So what does he do? He goes to the Pharisees. He's like, that man, that Jesus, that's the one that commits, so that's why I can walk. And he's the one that told me to carry my mat. So what happens is, these guys, instead of being like, man, you were not able to walk for almost four decades, and now you can, and you are now at the temple praising God, now they're like, we don't like Jesus because he heals people on the Sabbath. So clearly he's not from God. And that begins then our Sabbath controversies that we have. 
right? It says, so Jesus began, or because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, they, the Jewish leaders began, right, to persecute him, to find ways, to look for ways to find fault. Because in their mind already, they said, this guy can do miracles, but he's clearly not from God because he's violating what we think God would want from us. Because he's telling people to pick up mats and, and move them on the Sabbath. So they attack him for performing a miracle. The next verse, it says, In his defense, Jesus said to them, You know what? My father is always working to this very day, and I'm working too. Right? I, I think we, we see that, uh, that when they attack Jesus and he come, they come against him, that is, I, oftentimes we think of Jesus being meek and mild and never saying anything. Sometimes he defends himself. And they're like, how dare you cause this man to work? And he says to them, you know what? My father is always working. And this really upsets them. And it's not that Jesus was saying that God doesn't care about the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath. God just didn't make the stupid law that you can't pick up a mat and move it from point A to point B. He's like, keep this day separate, right? Be, don't go to work on that day. Don't do things that you just have to, right? But, but that's not what makes them so mad, because they know that he's, he's not saying that God doesn't care about the Sabbath, right? What makes them mad is that he is equating himself to God. That my father is working, because they all agreed God was working on the Sabbath afterwards, right? Because the whole world doesn't fall apart on, on every seventh day. Have you noticed that? Everything still holds together. So they recognize that God was still at work. But th- what they said is that Jesus is saying, yeah, and so I am too. And I'm keeping things together. And so they get mad at him. Right? They say, for this reason, uh, they tried to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. This is why. Like, there's a lot of people in our modern day, if you go online, that are pseudo-intellectuals that think they know about Scripture without ever having read it and things. They'll say, no one ever claimed Jesus was God until centuries after he died. I'm like, well, here's the Gospel of John, which we know was written less than 100 years, right? Because it was John wrote it, and there's no doubt about that. And right here it says that people tried to kill him because Jesus equated himself with God. Very clearly through Scripture, over and over again, Jesus calls himself God. And so Jesus starts from here, and then he goes on to explain his divinity. And there's a wonderful sermon that he really puts into this at this point, uh, starting in verse 19, and it goes to the end of the chapter. And he talks about how he is God. He has the ability. He's not just equated with God. He is God himself. And he, he gives some evidence to that. He says he was sent from God the Father, and he acts as God's agent. He says, I don't do things on my own. Everything you see me doing is what God the Father wants me to do. And he's being an authority by God over life and over death and over judgment and over salvation. So he's like, you better think about how you're going to treat me. Think about this really clearly and carefully before you reject me. And so he goes on to say, if you accept me, you are accepting God because I am God. And if you reject me, you are rejecting God. So if you accept me, you'll have life and it'll be great. But if you reject me, you'll receive the wrath of God and you will have death. And then he says, you know what? Don't take my word for it. He says, if I just give my own testimony, I'm just a guy out here just saying these things, then don't listen. But he says, but look at the testimony that I do have. You know that prophet that's out in the wilderness? The one that was just recently arrested? The one that everybody agrees is a prophet of God? He's the one that testified to me. He said, look, there's the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the earth. He says, you trust him, right? And he's undeniably righteous, and all the Pharisees would have to agree. 
You say, well, he testified to me. But beyond that, he says, how about my miracles? Can you make people that are lame walk? Can you make people that are blind see? Can you heal lepers? I don't think so. So my miracles right there should just be something to tell you that maybe I'm a little bit more than you thought I was. And he says not only that, he says, God the Father also testifies me. See, remember that John when he baptized me and I don't know, the sky opened up and God the Father was there and the Holy Spirit came upon me and he said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Remember that? He's like, well, that's a pretty good testimony. He said, if that's not enough for you, because maybe you weren't there. He says, guess what you all have? You have the scriptures, and they all testify to me. And last week we saw a lot of the prophecies that were testifying to him. And he says, the prophets in the scriptures themselves testify of me. And he says, you know what one of those prophets' name is? Moses, the one that you're all so worried about obeying right now. And he says, and the time comes when judgment happens. I'm not going to have to be the one that, can, that brings any charge against you. I'll condemn you. But I'm not going to bring any charge against you. Moses himself will stand there and say, those guys are fools. So Jesus reams them out. And they deserved it. Because a man was healed. He got his life back. And he didn't violate a law. He violated their rules. And they're going to reject and persecute the healer over this? So anyway, Jesus had fun there. And there was a, a party. And then he walks back to Galilee. And he goes back to his home areas away from Jerusalem. But guess what? Trouble follows. Because now these guys are on his, his tail, right? They want to they persecute him. And so that brings up the Galilean Sabbath controversies. And we have two of them that are recorded. The first one is reaping grain. And this is the thing. His, his disciples were walking through a field. It was on a Sabbath. So I don't know. Maybe it was on their way back to Jerusalem or back to uh, Galilee from Jerusalem. Or it could have been a little bit later. It doesn't really matter. And they're walking through a field. And they're hungry. And there's no 7-Elevens back then. So they're walking through a field, and according to the Jewish law, you, you could, if you were traveling, you could just take a handful of grain or things like this. Uh, it was something that was in there written, and so that the people who were poor, you're not supposed to, like, you're supposed to go through your fields once, right, to take your stuff, and then whatever is left, you give to those who are poor. And so his disciples are walking through, and they're hungry, and they take a handful of grain, right, and they're chewing on it, and... Wouldn't you know, those Pharisees and religious peoples are like, ha-ha, they're working, because that's harvest. Technically, that's harvesting. And so they're working, and they're cooking, because they put it in their mouth, right? And you are guilty, guilty, guilty. You're working on this holy day. And Jesus stops, and he says, listen, guys. Didn't even King David, like if you're worried about violating something, didn't even King David, he had like these, his whole army was really, really hungry. They were having a difficult time, right? And, and uh, being pers uh, pursued and all this. And they show up at the temple and there's, at the temple there's holy bread. This really just set aside for God, right? And his soldiers are literally starving. And he goes and he tells the priest, bring that bread out so my people won't die. And the priest does. And his soldiers are fed and they're saved. And Scripture says this was a good move because God cares about his people. And he said, you know what? If that was okay, 
Why is it not okay for, for these guys just to have a handful of grain? And he says, you know what, but you're worried about, if David could do that, it's one thing, but one who's greater than the temple is standing right in front of you, which is a big deal, because the temple was that place where God would meet with people. Jesus is God, and he's meeting with people. And so they get all mad about this, and they're like, oh, you know, we don't like this, so we're going to find a way to really get Jesus. And so later on, it was another Sabbath, he goes into one of their synagogues. And he gets into that synagogue, and uh, there's a man there that they have, that has a withered hand. It's on a Sabbath, right? And they know it. He's got this hand that was born. It's just not fully formed. And, of course, Jesus has compassion on it, and they set him right up front, right? So that way, it was a temptation for Jesus. It's a trap, <laughs> right? That's exactly what it is. And Jesus sniffs it out. He knows exactly what the problem is. Right? He knows what they're trying to do. And it says, he's, and it wasn't hard, right? He sees what was in their hearts. And, and he's like, what are you, on earth are you doing? In uh, Matthew 12, it says, um, yeah, going from that place, went to the synagogue, and there's this man there. And, and looking for a reason to bring charges against him, they said, is it lawful to heal him on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response is, is it lawful to do good things on the Sabbath? What a great answer to that. He's like, you know, if you have a donkey or an ox or something that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, are you going to go out and save it? Because that was like really expensive. It's like if you have your car just like run into a ditch on the Sabbath, it's slowly sinking, and it's gonna, right? you're going to go and get it. So if you can do that for a donkey, how, why would I not be able to help a human being? And they were just sat there because they already had their minds made up. They were already wanting to get Jesus. They're like, okay, he's going to do it. And Jesus says, gets really mad and makes sense. So he says, all right, I'll do this. He says, sir, would you please stand up? The guy stands up and he says, you see him? Stretch out your hand. And the man stretches out his hand and he's healed. They saw and witnessed a miracle of God in their synagogue. They saw a man restored and made whole. And what was their response? Verse 14. But the Pharisees went and plotted how they might kill Jesus. The God didn't fit in their box. He broke all their little rules. He didn't violate any of his laws, but he broke all their little rules and they didn't like it. So in the name of maintaining righteousness, they plotted murder. And before we judge the Pharisees, let's remember that we are all this stupid. Right? Every one of us, when, when God doesn't meet our expectations, when things don't happen, don't we always think we know best? I mean, look at these humans. Look at the state of our world and our, even our wonderful nation right now. How many things are we destroying because people are doing what's right in their own eyes? And we think we're somehow justified by doing awful things in the name of protecting righteousness? The ends don't justify the means. And this is why we don't do what's right in our own eyes. It's why it's so essential as Christians that we follow Jesus. We deny ourselves, which means our own best thinking, and we trust him. Because here's something cool about God. He's never going to fit in your box. He don't fit in anything because he's huge, infinite. And so 
we find that Jesus does this amazing healing. He heals and he heads out to the Sea of Galilee right after this. And a lot of people follow him. And then he appoints his 12 apostles. Now, apostles, it's an important thing. Or it's, it's more than a disciple. Like, we're all disciples of Jesus, right? We're disciples of Jesus, built generational, transformational disciples. They were disciples as well. All of us who follow Jesus are disciples. But an apostle is something more. These are a, it's an office that God has given. It's an, it really means those that are sent out. But it's an envoy of Christ Jesus himself, commissioned by him directly, or at least by one of his apostles under the the oversight of the Holy Spirit. These apostles were trained directly by the Lord. And so they have a different kind of authority and a different kind of an anointing of God's Holy Spirit, which you see in the book of Acts, how it works out. It's an amazing thing, right? These apostles it's, uh, really became a foundation for the early church. And so he names them, and of course, this is not a photograph but it's one you're all aware. This was uh, Leonardo da Vinci. It was in the 15, like 15 centuries after this, so it's not historically accurate at all. But just so you know the names as they go through there, uh, who, is, who are these disciples? So we start with the guy next to him. That's John. John writes the Gospel of John, writes the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was the youngest of the disciples. He ends up preaching throughout this region, especially in Greece. He has these, um, and uh, he ends up... Uh, being, they tried to, Romans tried to kill him a couple times, and they finally are like, we can't kill you, so they stick him on an island of Patmos, and he writes Revelation. Cool dude. Next to him is Peter. Peter was also Simon. Uh, he was uh, one of the early leaders of the church, right? First and second Peter writes to those. The Gospel of Mark was written. Mark was his uh, apprentice, basically, and, and he has a lot to do with that. He was an early church leader, very important guy. Um, he was cr- he was crucified upside down in the circus there in, uh, in Rome uh, with under Nero. And uh, just an amazing, powerful uh, man of God. You, next to him, you have that rat Judas. And I call it because there's another Judas that's not a rat. But that's the one who'd betrayed Jesus and then took his own life and got icky splattered. So then uh, next to him, you have... And by the way, that Judas was the only of the disciples that wasn't a Galilean. Isn't that interesting? He was uh, uh, from Judah. All right, so then Andrew, uh, next to there, was the last of the inner three. Jesus had three really close disciples, right? So you have Andrew was one of those. He was the brother of Peter, right? Um, he was uh, an amazing evangelist. He went to Greece, and uh, it, where he was eventually executed on an X-shaped cross, which is many flags over there in, is, in uh, Europe are that ex-safe trust is the St. Andrew's cross. Even while he was dying, it took him three days, so history says, to die. And while he was hanging on the cross, he was bringing his, th- he was sharing the gospel and bringing people to, to Jesus, saving them even on that. Just a cool dude. All right. Next to him is James the Lesser. Why is he lesser? No one knows. Uh, b- <laughs> possibly shorter, possibly younger. Possibly less important. No, I'm just kidding. He was just as important. Very important. But he's kind of the, um, the apostle that we don't know a ton about. There's a lot of interesting things in history as to what he did. Uh, he was a son of uh, Alf- um, Alphaeus. He might have been Matthew's brother because Matthew was also son of Alphaeus, but treated differently than all the other brothers in there. So maybe there was just two different guys named Alphaeus, which is possible. Um, but yeah, so he was a, an apostle. 
Not tons known about him, a lot of uh, legend about uh, where he went. Uh, the most credible one that I've seen or through church history is that he went up into Syria and then he was eventually sawed into pieces, which is why the saw is a representation of the apostles oftentimes is where that came from. It was from him because he stayed uh, faithful to the Lord in the midst of that and uh, it was good. Then we have Bartholomew. Uh, he's also known as Nathaniel. Why? I don't know, but he is. Went to North India, um, and uh, yeah, he ended up, I think, being filleted alive, but uh, um, even in that, testifying to Christ and bringing those that were persecuting him to faith, uh, which is interesting. Thomas is next to him uh, on the other side. Thomas, of course, known as Doubting Thomas, but never got in trouble for doubting. Thomas just wanted to have reason to believe. And so Thomas was a phenomenal disciple. Uh, he went up into uh, India and uh, ended up getting into, there was a, the pro- priest of Kali that uh, didn't like that Thomas was bringing a lot of people from that false, dead, godless, demonic religion to the living Savior. And so they had a riot and killed him. Um, uh, and, uh, but he brought lots of people to Christ up into there. You have James the Great. Uh, why is he great? We don't know, but he is. And so he is the son of Zebedee. He was John's brother, and um, he continued to do uh, amazing things very briefly after Jesus raised from the dead because he was the first of the disciples that was executed. He's actually the only one that's recorded in Scripture, and, and Herod had him beheaded because he wouldn't stop testifying about Jesus. You have Philip is next to him. Uh, he went to Syria and uh, brought many, many to faith. He was ended up being crucified. Next to him is Matthew, writes the gospel of Matthew, right? And has his heart for his Jewish family, his, the, the, the tribe of, of Israel to come to faith in the Lord. And so he does a lot of worship uh, or training there and he goes down to Ethiopia, which has a large Jewish contingency. And he brings many, many to faith and, and plants the church there in Ethiopia where he eventually is impaled and killed, but uh, even then testifying, even on his death, the, the truth and the power and the hope of Christ, even to those who persecuted him. Uh, then there's Thaddeus, who is the good Judas, because he's also in scripture called Judas, but every time they're very clear, they're like, this isn't the dumb one. This is a good one. Right? He went to Armenia. Um, he also went there with Simon. Uh, Simon went with him as well. He was also known as the Zealot uh, because there was a political group that were kind of assassins, the Zealots, and somehow Simon found his Messiah and followed him. And the two of them went to Armenia um, where they were both martyred, but they, uh, before that happened, they planted hundreds and hundreds of churches. Uh, and things. These are the apostles that Christ calls and every one of them had a very common, ordinary beginning. And every one of them are legend now because of Christ and because of their faithfulness. Cool guys. So after he calls the disciples, he takes them up. And he's going to teach them about his kingdom. And that's where we have the Sermon on the Mount and the Plain. As he goes through, he sees what a lot of people follow him. And so they bring him to the Sermon on the Mount. And I always wondered where this took place. Well, it's the Mount of Beatitudes. It's about, an, it's about a mile away from Capernaum. It's where it was. Um, if you go there, it looks like this. This is uh, where Jesus gave that sermon. And it's that area right there where he gave this amazing sermon. And it's kind of on a mount. It's kind of on a plain, right? Um, it's in a flat area. It's an acoustic anomaly. If you stand at the bottom, people, even if you whisper kind of at the bottom, people on the hill can hear you. It's kind of cool. So you can have large crowds listen to that. And uh, there's a church that they've built up there. Oop, 
and my arrow there. And this is the view. Like if you are on that hill looking down, this is what it looks like. So when people listen to the Sermon on the Mount, this is what they were hearing. And I'm not going to read the Sermon on the Mount for you because I want you to do that this week. It's, it's incredible. It talks about the kingdom of God. But it starts with these things called Beatitudes. And it says, blessed are the, all right, for they shall receive. And every one of those Beatitudes is an Old Testament promise for the people of Israel. Every one of them. And so Jesus starts with the kingdom of God. says, so this is not something that's a new thing. That God has been preparing his kingdom all the way through. And I'm showing you, I'm bringing you this kingdom now. Which is really cool. And, and then each one after that, he talks about the responsibilities of members of God's kingdom. Because there are different responsibilities in the rest of the world. And he says things like, you are salt of the earth, right? And you are the light of the world. And when he talks about the light being up like a city on a hill, there was actually a, a, a city that was on a hill. It's on the other side. There's Antonio Curve there, but on the other side of the lake, which you would be able to see from this spot, there was a city that was up. The name Hippo was on top of a hill. And everybody around the lake could see it at night because it was one of those Roman cities and there lots of lights. And he points to all these things and says, this is my kingdom. It's better than the worldly kingdom. It's so different. And after he talks about responsibility, he talks about the importance of God's law. And he says, you know, I didn't come to, to, to do away with God's law because this is what everybody was talking about, right? All of the Sabbath controversies, people saying you're trying to get rid of God's law. He says, not at all. I didn't come to get rid of God's law, to abolish law, but to fulfill God's law. And then he goes through and he talks about six different corrections and people misinterpreting the law that Jesus himself wrote. He says, you have heard it said that, but I tell you. And he tells us how God wants his law to be understood. And then he goes on and he talks about the difference between righteous faith versus hypocrisy and, hypo and the type of faith that we saw in the Pharisees that would condemn a man because he had the audacity of being healed. And then he goes on at the end, he talks about the promises of God's provision and God's power and God's promise of transformation in our lives. It's an incredible sermon, and I encourage you to read it. It's, it's phenomenal. And then at the end of that sermon, Matthew 7, 28, so when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. See, so Jesus wasn't teaching hearsay about the law. He was the lawgiver himself, and he has shown up to tell us God's ways. And he gives us a much better kingdom. He gives us a much better law in that. And after he does this, he heads back to Capernaum. And as he goes to Capernaum, he's met by a centurion's servant. Or a centurion, he's going to heal his servant. Now, the centurion is a Roman officer. And something you need to know about the Jewish people is they didn't like the Romans because the Romans were real ornery. They were not good. They were wicked to the, the Israelites. Man, they would crucify them, take their stuff, rape their women, you know, steal their things. It was awful. They were occupied people. And if you were a Jew, you wouldn't like the Romans. And everybody at this point was like, Jesus is the Messiah. And they thought the Messiah was going to be like the Maccabees, was going to go and kill the Romans. That's what they expected. That's what they wanted. So Jesus shows back up into, after all of this big sermon, he goes back to his, his home base and there's a Roman centurion right there and is asking for help. And I imagine the expectation was Jesus is going to kill this centurion because the Messiah was there. But he doesn't. The centurion says, my servant's in agony. He can't walk, suffering. Would you heal him? And even though this is a mortal enemy of the Jews, our Messiah says, yeah, I'll go. 
And then the centurion says something remarkable. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, uh, actually I have it up here. He says, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, that's shocking humility because this is a man that's in charge of a lot of Romans, and this is an occupied people, and there was a lot of racism back then, and so the Romans thought they were all of that and everybody else was just not so much because they were barbarians. And this was a leader of the Romans. To have that kind of humility to say, I'm not worthy of having you in my home, can you imagine? It was also shocking faith. He says, I, I know what it's like commanding things. I don't have to go to every battlefront. I just say, get stuff done and gets done. I know you got authority. And Jesus is shocked by this. He says, he's shocked by this faith. He says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Now, Jesus was going to heal this man's servant regardless. But he was amazed. And he does. So he heals the man, uh, the servant from distance. And the guy goes back and, and he has it. So, what, so this is what I want us to get up to today. The first thing that we see in the second year of ministry is that Jesus is king of a better kingdom, right? And on this Independence Day, it's important for us to remember that we do have a dependence on God, that we need to be part of his kingdom. This, I'm not here on this earth to build my own little kingdom here, right? I'm not here to, to make, you know, Aaron's way or the highway, because it's going to be the highway all day long, right? And that's what way it is for all of us. He came to set about a different way of life, a way of life that sees God for who he is, righteousness as it truly is, experience life with God in truth. In this kingdom, he came to undo the old way, the old order, and the old order has been undone because Jesus come to inaugurate his kingdom, we get to live within it, which is why we read in books like Galatians that things like our socioeconomic background gender, race, all of these things that we use to separate and divide and hate one another, these things are not at all part of God's kingdom now, which is why in our church that we can have Democrats and Republicans here and love each other because we love Jesus together, don't we? The old order is undone. Jesus' kingdom is different. And this is God's kingdom here. And you can't be part of the two kingdoms. You can be part of God's kingdom or your own. And Jesus enters and invites us into his kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom is where the broken are healed. It's where the overlooked are made great. You could be a lame man by a pagan pool for 38 years and our God will see you and he will call you. You could be an ordinary guy out fishing or taking taxes or whatever and our God can see you and he can call you and he can make you great. He finds us where we are and he changes us from what we used to be into something altogether new. We get a new identity in him. Which is why Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. To die to your old way of life, take up your cross. But follow him. Follow him into this kingdom. The second thing we think about Jesus is this, is that he is a Lord of a much better law. He's not about nitpicky rules. He's about righteousness, deep, profound righteousness. See, God's kingdom isn't about lawlessness. It's not about we're Christians, so that way we just have this grace so we can do whatever we want. It's that we are set free now from the bondage of sin that once held us, from the guilt and the weight of that guilt and the condemnation that came with that guilt. We are free from those things. We have been set free, saved by God's grace through faith, so that we can do the good works God has called to prepared in advance for us. That God has made you into something beautiful and wonderful. And his law is not a burdensome thing like a cage on the outside that, that, that traps you in. 
God's law is like a new program on your heart. He, he trains it inside of you. So the natural you begins to do the great things. That's what it says, that he rewrites his law into our very lives, into our very hearts. And so we recognize that law was put in its place. We as humans need law because we are morally broke. And so we use these laws to keep us from acting nasty, right, towards one another and to have society work. But the law has to be put in its place. That Jesus says, all right, I'm going to put that law here. I'm going to put righteousness inside of you. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. So that way you don't, you're not just acting good. I'm going to make you deeply, thoroughly good. And so you'll be saved by grace through faith to do these good works that God has made us for. Now, Jesus is the king of a better kingdom, and he's the Lord of a better law. So how do you apply that? How do we get these things today to make a difference in our life as followers of Jesus? Well, on your connection card, I have a couple things that you can do, four points. The first one, I'm going to ask you to memorize Matthew 16, 24. It's so important that we remember that if anybody wants to be a disciple of Jesus, every one of us has to deny ourselves. We can't follow Jesus and say, Jesus, follow me. It doesn't work that way. We say, Jesus, your way. I'm going to trust you, right? Take up our cross, but follow him, follow him. Repentance is not turning away from sin, it's turning to the Lord. You can't turn to sin and Jesus at the same time. So turn to him. Why don't you read Matthew 5 through 7, why it's a Sermon on the Mount. It's much better than this sermon today, I promise, because Jesus gave it. So read it. Another thing I would encourage you to do is declare your dependence on this day. That you're not in this alone. We are dependent upon God. Don't think for a moment that any one of us here doesn't have the capacity to be a Pharisee. Declare your dependence on God. We need Him and His direction and His word. We need His help to live this life. And this world is too big for all of us. All of us are just like the the, the leper, right? Or the, the, the lame man. This world can break any one of us. But our God is the only one that can carry us and heal us. Declare your dependence, your dependence on God this week. Morning, when you wake up, just say, God, I need you. I invite you to work in my life today. But as you do that, I also want you to celebrate your independence. Yes, as an American, because it's fun, shoot some fireworks, have some hot dogs, but I want you to do something else too. Celebrate your independence from the guilt and the shame, that the, the things that held you back in the past, that Jesus came to break the back of the devil. He destroyed the enemy. He has set you free for freedom. So enjoy it. All right, hopefully I've given you all something to do. Please make your commitments. Let me know what they are. If you have a prayer request, write this down. Drop them in the offering basket at the back. And I'm going to invite our awesome new worship pastor as well as uh, our worship team uh, to come up and to lead us with one more song as uh, I pray for you as you make those commitments. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. You're a powerful God, but you're also a loving God. You're not distant and far away. You're not like uh, like. The, the DS would have thought, Lord, you are very near and personal, God. You care for us. You created us. You came to redeem us. We want to know you more. We want to follow you in your ways. We want your kingdom to come alive in our lives. Lord, we invite that work in you. We, de- we declare that we are dependent wholly upon you to do this transformation that none of us could do. We declare our dependence on your sacrifice on the cross to set us free from sin as well as our dependence on your Holy Spirit to do the sanctifying work in our lives. Dependence on your word to help, help us lead a good life. Attendance on, on your church that you've made us a part of so that we can work together building each other up in every way more and more like Christ. 
Father, in this as we declare that dependence, will you celebrate the independence you gave to us in Jesus. Help us live as those who are set free. And so, Father, in that spirit, we make these commitments today. Help us to follow you as we follow them, inviting you into our life and our world so that you can be honored. Lord, we pray all of this in the powerful name of our King Jesus. Amen.